Hello, my name is Patricia Rosvora and you're listening to Kitchen Conversations. This podcast aims to open up the mysterious and vague Eastern Bloc to a broader audience. For each episode, I'm inviting one artist or researcher and together we explore the relation, interest and the urgency to create within the framework of the post-Soviet sphere. Here, I also wanted to thank everyone for listening and supporting this podcast. It's very rewarding to see that with every episode, the community is growing, which was, of course, the whole point of this platform. If you are a regular listener, you might want to check out my Patreon page, where you can support my work and help me develop this amazing but time-consuming project. You can do that on patreon.com slash kitchenconversations. Welcome back everyone. Today at my kitchen table I'm hosting another Kitchen Conversations guest. I'm very happy to finally release this episode with you. I waited a while since we originally recorded this episode back in February, still before the war and of course due to the circumstances I waited a little bit with releasing it and I thought it would be better to focus my energy on something else. I created Kitchen Conversations for Ukraine where I speak about the arts and culture of Ukraine and those episodes will still continue. I'm still preparing two of those for you and perhaps there will be more in the future so don't worry about that and I really also liked the format of hosting the podcast let's say by myself and doing all this research but I thought it would be good for me and for you also I think uh, to change a little bit the format and come back to our original interview way of spreading uh, knowledge and speaking about art so without further ado I will say a few words about today's guest and then we jump in into the conversation Sofia Tabatadze is a Georgian visual artist currently working and living in Berlin. She began her artistic journey in Tbilisi, after which she moved to Amsterdam to study, same as me, at the Gerrit Rietveld Academy. Her work has been exhibited worldwide, among others, at the 52nd Venice Biennale and the 10th International Istanbul Biennale. Her experimental documentary film Pirimze, that we will be today speaking extensively about, had its premiere at the Vision Duril in Nyon. Back in 2021, Sofia co-founded a company called Mukao that makes innovative products from corrugated cardboard. The idea of the company that we will also be speaking about is based on three simple principles, creativity, playfulness and awareness. Welcome, Sofia, to Kitchen Conversations, second attempt. <laughs> Let's hope it works this time. <laughs> Thank you again <laughs> for having me here. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was saying that we um, met through the name of 
Kitchen Conversations and Soul Kitchen, your project, mm-hmm. which we will be uh, speaking about a bit later in the podcast. I think you were like looking for different people working with kitchens and that's how you found me or how was it again? Yeah, it's kind of when you are involved in a project, then you kind of develop some kind of radar for like finding topics connected to it. So I made this uh, these drawings uh, under the name uh, Soul Kitchen. And then every time I would kind of hear the word kitchen, still, I'm still in the process. I'm kind of like, oh, let's see, maybe there is a connection possible. So I think I listened to your first podcast uh, where you interviewed uh, Misho Antadze. Then I realized your your name is Kitchen Conversations. And of course, Kitchen Conversations with the, within the Soviet um, realm is kind of a topic. We, we know this, that there were lots of kitchen conversations and not too many uh, texts or kind of uh, things that were published uh, afterwards, you know, so somehow it, it rings a bell anyway. But then because of the soul kitchen, I was like, okay, let's connect. So I kind of, I remember that I contacted you and I told you like, hey, yeah, this is, you know, I made this book and maybe you're interested. And like some month after we are here, which That's is really nice. Yeah. And yeah. the funny thing is like when we met, uh, we discovered like there's a lot of things which actually connect us. That we're both Ritfelders. Exactly. <laughs> both lived uh, in Amsterdam as well. And yeah. Did and the moved same after school. Amsterdam to Berlin, to Berlin. Because I moved to Rotterdam, but you didn't. Uh, to Berlin. <laughs> yeah. That we went to the same art school, which is also so super funny. special. But like many years after. So we kind of. Different yeah, experience, I absolutely, guess. Absolutely. I'm sure. Of the, yeah. of the school. Yeah. Please uh, tell us a little bit uh, about you being an artist, creative, or however you like to call yourself, and how you ended up being here mm. and creating. Yeah, so I I was born and raised in Georgia. So I lived there till I was 20. Um, and then I went to study to Ritfeld Academy, which, we all, which you also graduated, which is nice that this also connects us. Uh, so I was 20 uh, when I went there to study like visual arts because I kind of really hated the art academy in Georgia and I still hate it. Um, I had like experienced there two times in my life, once as a teacher for one year and once as a student for one year. And after both experiences, I was like, this building should be burned down. You know, I really hated it. So um, Ritfeld was kind of the first thing that I tried and I was accepted that I didn't know much about Ritfeld and Netherlands was somehow because of uh, language-wise English would be accepted. So somehow it was kind of a, in a way, random. And it's interesting then how these random things then kind of uh, give you the direction for the rest of your life. So I went to study uh, when I was 20 and um, I lived in Amsterdam five years studied, graduated, and then I lived in Rotterdam for three years. And then I thought like, yeah, somehow this really well-kept and well-organized Netherlands was kind of, I had enough of it because especially my work was getting more and more like political and social kind of uh, interests and aspects in it. So I was like, yeah, okay, why why am I why am I here then? You there know, there's not much place for that. Right? No, 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 everything no. works so well somehow that um, no yeah, it's all all very well organized and kind of. I was looking very much at Georgian situations and you know if you want to kind of make some political. Uh, works and you are from Georgia it's kind of a uh, good <laughs> and then I thought like yeah maybe yeah then I moved back after eight years um, and then I lived three years in Georgia 
And then I was, I'm kind of jokingly always saying, then Europe called me back. So after <laughs> after three years, I was invited to a residency uh, in Berlin uh, by Sharing Foundation. Uh, the residency is at um, uh, Kunstlerhaus Betanien. So there was a one-year stipend. And I was really hesitant because I was like, oh, but here... And I was really doing well in Georgia. I really enjoyed being there. I did so much when I lived there. And uh, so I was a bit like, oh, should I do? Because, you know, one year residency is like one year residency. Three months residency is you kind it's of... It's quite some, yeah, yeah. you kind of put your life on hold a little bit and you come back after three months. And one year is different. And I didn't really want to move somewhere else. But after one year, I stayed here. And I think I'm like 14 years now in Berlin. So I kind of... Are you a Berliner now? Now, well, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I never became a Berliner. I always have a feeling I still don't understand a lot. I think like Tbilisi and Amsterdam and Rotterdam are more comfortable size cities for me. This is too big, you know, I never really mm. understand. It doesn't have a center, you know, it has many centers. So I never kind of really operate here. But my son is Berliner now. So in a way that makes me a mother of Berliner. <laughs> so yeah. that's why I kind of will stay here for still coming years. <laughs> and uh, how did you become an artist? I think I kind of know from the age of 14 that I am an artist or I want to be an artist. I think it's quite I, that specific, I'm, 14. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why 14, but it's 14. <laughs> uh, yeah. 14 is certain kind of a year in my life that certain things were pretty developed at 14. I started drawing. I used to draw a lot and I kind of really just, you know, went and devoted myself to it. Yeah, maybe a bit earlier because at 14 I already started this um, art college, which is something that you, uh, you either can graduate your school or you kind of go to this art direction, which was really, really great for me back then because I really was skipping the school almost every day because I really didn't see any reason why and this art college really was great this was like five year experience before the art academy that I said should be burned down <laughs> so this is a different thing I would not burn this but it doesn't exist anymore um, unfortunately so it was an art college I, I I don't know if it exists in somewhere else, but it's some kind of a Berufsausbildung, maybe something like oh, this. Yeah, you know, yeah, that yeah. you kind of have a professional education for something. And this was for artists. So, like, we would go there and from the morning till one, we would have either drawing or composition or painting. So this was, like, all we did, which was really great. I think, uh, yeah, all of a sudden I was like, wow, you know, no, no, no lessons, no nothing, yeah. just this, you know. Back then I was already pretty decided I'm an artist. I used to do drawings. I mean, drawing was a thing that I did the most and drawing was also something that I, I don't know, I, I remember now like a little story uh, that uh, like I was doing music as well. Like I was, I, was, I was playing piano because I don't know, every Soviet kid was somehow <laughs> believed they should learn Especially piano. Especially girls, right? Was Especially that? girls, maybe even more. Yeah, true. Maybe boys, they would also start, but then if they would resist, would be fine, um, Would of. be fine, but the girls had to learn also to do something through this resistance. <laughs> I think this is kind of the girls' thing. 
so anyway, and then there was this teacher who kind of, you know, I, I changed my teacher at the last year and I was really bad at playing piano and I was already in the seventh grade, which was kind of graduating grade. And she was like, you have to play at least four hours a day to come to the exam. And four hours a day sounded like absolute impossible amount of time Crazy. because if I would sit at the piano I think I would, after five minutes I really was already like yeah I'm done <laughs> <laughs> you know and then I kind of told to my mom a bit like I don't know if four hours it's really like it's impossible like I don't I don't think I can do anything for four hours which is like when you draw you do, draw for more sometimes even longer than four hours so this was some kind of a, you know, a from the outside, a reflection on me of like, oh, yeah, maybe something I do for four hours without thinking about the time. So drawing was that, like, um, yeah, where, where, where time disappears, you know, where you kind of do something and time disappears and you just do something. So this is how I started. Then I went to Rietveld. Rietveld was kind of, um, yeah, it's more conceptual school. It also kind of, you know, if you come from a country like Georgia, it also pushes you a little bit to do more political and social work, which maybe wouldn't be my own choosing. But at one point, you don't really know what is your decision and what what has the school given you it became more and more political i was kind of interested in some yeah political or social aspects of my own work and of work of other people as well i think another thing was like uh, i stopped drawing back then because uh, drawing is the hardest for me to talk about or to explain because it's so much connected with flow and losing the time and things happen. And at Rietfeld, we were very much taught how to talk about our work and how to defend ourselves when 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 the uh, either teachers or the other art other you know colleagues uh, criticize. Uh, so we kind of very you know, true, yeah. and I think it's it's a, it was a good experience for me to kind of learn how to not to take everything very personally and not cry every time after the critics uh, but to kind of learn how to talk about it but drawing was very very hard to talk still it is you know I'm like yeah this is the drawing you know <laughs> and then I kind of instead of learning how to talk about my drawings I think I learned how to make different kind of work <laughs> if I think about it like this so I started making more installations and installations are more planned in your head and therefore it's easier to talk about why you started it and you know yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it was a bad experience uh, because I think it's good to learn how to talk about your work. But I still didn't really learn how to talk about my drawings, which is probably Maybe also, also okay, fine. right? Yeah. I, now I don't have this pressure that I have to know something. But you know, when you're a student, you kind of think like, oh, maybe I should be able to do this and that and so then I did more installations then I went back to Georgia and I did there a lot of um, uh, performances I had a colleague with whom we worked and she was coming more from the uh, dance and movement and then we did a lot because we had a lot to say and we wanted to say all these things right there Mm. loud and angry also kind of social and political aspect these works had um yeah then i did this film which uh, we're going to talk about which is called pirimze uh that was kind of my yeah one of the largest projects in terms of like i think for five years i've been only looking through the like glasses of pirimze <laughs> at the world 
and and now I am kind of you know slowly returning to drawing, which was really something that you know I I stopped for a long time and I really didn't know how to come back. I didn't even miss it. I think it was more the other people who would always tell me like, oh, but your drawings are beautiful, ah, and yeah. then you're like, oh yeah yeah yeah. But I really didn't know how to approach it, and now I kind of approached it from this a bit more unexpected direction which was yeah more um yeah playful through my kid you know like like you know I approached it not from this professional artist uh, pressure but more like hey let's start having fun on the <laughs> on the like uh, table on, on the not on of. the table but on the yeah exactly where it started on the on the paper again you know so this is how it kind of mm. uh came back to me let's say yeah i think art schools like can kill certain joy of art as well you know definitely kind of for sure <laughs> art schools and i think um i was i had some kind of artistic blog for few years and then I was kind of searching a lot like soul searching and kind of looking inside me it was not necessarily only art world but like profession like when art becomes a profession and you becoming a professional <laughs> like like you almost don't allow yourself to have fun and enjoy and do things and you know I, I don't know kind of I have seen so many rigid artists that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just do it as a profession, and I think this happened to me as well. Like you don't, you don't allow yourself to have failures. You don't allow yourself to have fun, and then you know, work becomes like this. Maybe yeah, the concentration goes like on how I'm gonna talk best about it instead of how I'm gonna have best time while making it. Maybe Definitely. that's the yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, yeah. Um, bridge or like the kind of a gap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, let's jump into your film or like the film and uh, the research and the work you did around it yeah. since I think you had fun with it since you spent <laughs> like five years almost or like there was True. some fun part <laughs> in it let's see about that you were interested in a building mm -hmm. called Pirimza mm -hmm. is that how Pirimza, you pronounce yeah. it? Mm -hmm. yeah, tell us about it what is that building and... Yeah, so you're right. It's not a film necessarily only. It's a multimedia project. And I didn't start thinking about it as a film. I started thinking about it as a as a building. So this was a building which I remember throughout my whole childhood. It was like super central in the center of Tbilisi. This is where I was um, born and um, where I grew up. And this was a place where uh, people from the city and from around the city from the from the regions as well could bring their stuff to repair so it was a repair paradise on six floors so you could basically repair anything starting from glasses to the jewelry to shoes to you could also go get like a haircut and get like uh, your your clothing repaired or sued and so it was kind of individual uh, approach so and why was repairing such a big thing yeah repairing was not in the beginning such a big thing i think uh, it was the building was from 70s and this was then back back then kind of this individual service which was kind of not so common in soviet union so if everything was kind of more like factory produced and stuff there was all of a sudden the need to you know do the individual things like also like sewing like haircuts so it was kind of individual services for people 
Uh, and then, of course, we know that the Soviet uh, goods and objects were not super good. I mean, now it's also another perspective because we have seen so many even worse uh, kind of produced shit <laughs> that now all of a sudden you realize, hey, maybe it was not as bad as we believed back then. It was bad. But, you know, like it was the, 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 the situation of deficit about everything. So if something would be broken, you wouldn't be able to buy again. You know, I remember like my mom standing in the line for getting a television. So getting things was like super hard. And then, you know, if that would break, then you would kind of go and repair it. And then in, like, in in 90s, like, repair became the almost only possibility to survive because people really didn't have any money. So then repair became some kind of a need, you know. It was not kind of, you know. So the building would kind of change its profile and, um, yeah, direction depending on the years, you know. So from in 70s it was different. In 80s it was different. In 80s, like, the people who worked there, they apparently made a lot of money because it was kind of already at the, you know, it was the, the Soviet Union was not as strong anymore and, you know, the 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 goods were not there so somehow it was possible to bootleg, bootleg and to kind of do things out of nothing you know so uh, with watches it was a lot of times connected some some kind of joke that you would bring your watch there and you know you would kind of lose this uh, good parts and <laughs> it would be replaced with cheap parts which could also be you know which could also be happening so I don't want to kind of um, um, yeah what's the word for it when you kind of only remember the good things because many people also think like, oh, really, I really don't want to go to that building. It was Because it was kind of a shady and it was really like a market kind of place. You know, where you go and, yeah, you can have this experience. I mean, I remember it in Turkey and in, in, in Morocco maybe. You know, when you go somewhere and all the people come and ask you to do, you it's know, chaotic, like, come, come, busy. come, come, yeah, here, yeah, yeah, here, yeah. here. And you don't really know, you cannot really decide <laughs> which shop you can choose or not. So it was like that. It was kind of a marketplace. But because it was Soviet Union and the market as such didn't exist, it was a special place. So I kind of sometimes say it was a little capitalistic system within the Soviet Union, but in a very, hmm. very Soviet way, because, you know, you would think at the end when the building kind of was sold, these people would be able to somehow survive because, you know, these were the uh, the the capitalists. Uh, but they were very Soviet capitalists. So in a way, in this kind of <laughs> neoliberal capitalism, they also didn't find themselves. Um, yeah they didn't succeed. It was more kind of the idea of the capitalism uh, looking from the Soviet Union. So yeah, so this was the building. Another thing that connected me to it was also there was this kind of a booth where you could make photos. So this kind of, you know, you put the coin in it and then after five minutes you have a photo. So I also mentioned already in different contexts, but it's now interesting that it comes together. I would skip school a lot uh, when I was <laughs> 12, 13, and then somehow to kind of register this skipping in some way. And I think I'm kind of a collector without realizing that I collect a lot of things. So I start collecting things, and then I realize after 10 years that, hey, I have a whole series of that. So we would go with friends and make this photo of ourselves to remember. Now it's like super cool thing, no? Like in Berlin, there are some places where you, you can go do it and anywhere, yeah. yeah. But there, it was the only place. Uh, so we would kind of have the photo 
like with friends with whom we were skipping school. So this was a special place to go. It was very central and it was a market. So it was kind of a, a building. So in winter you could kind of, you know, go and, and kind of keep yourself from like being cold outside. And it was kind of also no man's land. So you could kind of just stroll around and be there. So it was kind of a building that somehow always kind of attracted me, uh, but I was not really part of it as well because I was a young girl and it was a very man-dominated world, uh, especially the ground floor, which I kind of started as my inspiration was kind of starting from there. Uh, just here on the table, we have uh, your publication, which you did as part of the research. And also uh, you include here the, the photo, actually, which is so nice. Yeah. <laughs> because it's just like an object in the book. And yeah, as when I first opened it, I thought you just like left the photograph here. <laughs> yeah, so this is a very personal part of this, um, yeah, of this building. Yeah, I think I started thinking about this building when I already lived in the Netherlands. And then one year I went back and the building was no longer there. So this is this thing that all of a sudden you realize that something that you think is so much part of the city and of your own city as well, because cities also change. And then there are some neighborhoods that, you know, we don't go anymore from the people from that city. All of a sudden I realized, oh my God, I really love this building all these years and I never made one photo or one video or one recording of it. So this kind of idea of like, okay, it's gone and it's gone forever and how am I going to reconstruct it? So with this idea, I kind of walked around many years uh, and then I kind of started thinking like, yeah, what is that I miss about this building? And it was this ground floor, which was like this kind of small booth, tiny ones, one meter by one meter. And they had all kind of their inter, you know, like sm small little worlds of, of, of themselves, you know, so a watchmaker would have a lot of watches and would have a lot of, yeah, pinup posters like of naked girls. And it would be kind of like very, very men uh, dominated world, as I said, on that ground floor Upstairs, there were also lots of females in the sew sewing ateliers and stuff. The ground floor would be this kind of repair, repair of bags, of zippers, of umbrellas, of like anything whatsoever, buttons, button maker was there, you know, someone who would kind of take your button and cover it with a leather Oh, wow. stuff like this yeah it's like unimaginable things <laughs> yeah, for, for now no? yeah exactly it is it is <laughs> and they could also do like these metal things which you know kind of the madonna 80s kind of uh, style and then you know lots of uh, girls would do this for their graduation dresses or something you know like you know like they could make things that were non-existing in, in in Soviet Union. So like, let's say if someone would kind of import the um, magazine with like new fashion, these people could produce things with their hands. So this, this, this is what was magic about it. And yeah, so then I kind of started walking around in the neighborhood thinking like, okay, I'm already too late. How shall I start this? It's gone. And especially for the film, you always need, I mean, for visual art, you don't need this so much. For visual art, you can already, something that's gone or you kind of, you know, the digestion already has happened. You can show it in your work. But for film, you really need to show what's going on and not like what has happened. I started walking around in the neighborhood and then I discovered there are like 10 or more smaller spaces which appeared in the neighborhood, which are 
also called now, not also, but which kind of took the name Birimze. So I thought it's interesting that, you know, something is gone and then it's so much still present that, you know, everyone wants to be identified with it. From that point, it was easy to research because I, what I did, I went in one of the shops, in one of the workshops, uh, like they were scattered, you know, like smaller groups. But uh, quite around, close, quite right? close, the same yeah, area. Right. Mm-hmm. In the same area. So if you would walk around, you would just find like 10 as signs outside. So I started walking around and I went in one and I said, I want to rent a table here to work. And they were like, hey, what? You know, like imagine it's all <laughs> like men. <laughs> and then, you know, I am kind of, I'm like, yeah, I, I want to kind of reconstruct the Pirimza. So I kind of want to talk about, you know, think about it and, you know, talk to you about it. So they were like, okay, fine. So I kind of rented one table and what I started was to kind of talk to people about what it was so I started mapping the place so I would ask so who was sitting here who was sitting there and then they would remember like different times of course because it was changing and then I went one met one guy who you know then I didn't continue this research because he was so knowledgeable he would just kind of tell me <laughs> everything. everything yeah and you know you, we kind of build this trust and he was very interesting guy and he he was a button maker and he also kept like he was a fighter for the building so um yeah so kind of very shortly to tell what kind of has happened is there was a building so it was like a marketplace a small uh, capitalist world in the soviet setting and then it was um uh, privatized so these people also became shareholders but like partly of course and then the bigger part was owned by other people and then they kind of kicked these people out and then uh, these new people these new owners they decided to make a class a uh, business center which is kind of this vaguest name you know when you kind of in your own city there is a new building being built up and you don't know what it is it's like always a business center and makes you always wonder (laughs) which kind of funny (laughs) business and um, yeah so then uh, the building when I was filming it it was standing empty I think it's now also partially empty because somehow I mean it was uh, build on the ruins of something else and it was selling itself as something pretty different so this was kind of a it didn't work. pretty clear it, yeah you also showed that uh, in the movie yeah, right yeah. So there's a scene of that exactly thing. yeah so this guy has been fighting and he's been kind of besides just fighting he's been registering this whole thing you know so if there would be some uh, articles in the newspaper he would keep it he he had a video camera he recorded many things so you know, you know all of a sudden this was like you know wow the source and for, for, for him I was also the source of like, okay, why am I interested in it? Why, he what liked am I it, doing? right? I guess. He, he liked it. In the beginning, it's always, you know, like there is always this thing of when you come to a, to a place which has many questions and many uncertainties and unclearities, like who bought it and why and uh, some kind of corrupt uh, schemes are there. It's always this suspicious of like, are you a journalist? Are you going to help us? And if you're going to help us, how? So, you know, to break this through and to say I'm an artist, which is like super vague, like what? why are you interested? Yeah, yeah. Totally. And it's hard to explain because like I, I back then I kind of did few um, like uh, film developing workshops participated in them because I didn't really have any knowledge how to make a film and there I would also be asked you know kind of this uh, elevator pitch kind of thing that you know in two minutes you have to say why and it was like I actually have no idea so actually my film was about understanding why I want to make a film and if I think about it now 
I think I wanted to make a film in order to look behind the stages or the uh, look the backstage of this little personalized booth. So where as a young girl I would go but not really see the inside and I kind of knew that it's a corrupt situation as well. I kind of wanted to deconstruct this corruption. But that was kind of part of the story because now the whole neighborhood is being gentrified. So like then whatever didn't work for that one building now is kind of applied to the whole neighborhood. So as I said, when I started filming, it was already too late because the building was not there. But what I didn't realize that now what I have captured, because uh, there are some parts in film and some parts not. I mean, we have captured a lot of outside as well the whole neighborhood is now gone and gentrified even it has a new name so it's really yeah all of a sudden I realized I have this kind of time document which is no longer there so I was actually not late at all I was really in time to capture the whole change of the the beginning of the change perhaps Just for for the ending of this part, talking about this work, uh, I wanted to ask if actually the 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 people, the crafts people, saw your work. Mm-hmm. Some part of it, either the movie or mm-hmm. one of the exhibitions. In- Uh, Yes and no. They were not so interested. It's usually you work with people uh, and then um, somehow, I mean, I I invited some, not everyone, uh, because I was kind of also not ready for their reactions on the premiere. And then this guy who gave me a lot of materials, he died. That was really a pity because he kind of could be someone who would be interested. And then some people, when I went there, Afterwards, they asked me if the film is ready and I gave them the link. So like whoever was interested, I shared, but there were many who kind of just participate and are kind of not really interested. I mean, they have their struggles, I can yeah, yeah, imagine, yeah. right? They yeah. don't and mind yeah. so much about an artist. <laughs> exactly. No, not so much. And even if film is done, doesn't really change anything for them. So in a way, it's not really their... For sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can understand that. But uh, we want to see the film, so where is it possible to see it? So Sophia? I opened, the film was kind of, um, yeah, with a password, and I opened it, like, recently, <laughs> also preparing for this talk. I was like, okay, it's already so long ago, it should be open. Uh, so it's on a it's uh, on a blog spot, right? So it's, um, it's pirimzeblogspot.com, and there, uh, there is a whole... Yeah, there is a chapter about like all the other aspects of the film, of the project, and the film is also available available there on Vimeo. Yeah, that's great. I will include the link. I think it's always nice to have the visual together with our conversation. Mm. You know, I th- yeah, absolutely. It it's, it's kind of a teaser. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> In this few-minute break, I could be promoting a useless product or an external sponsor that would allow me to make this project financially sustainable. Yet, I want to use this few minutes to tell you more about my Patreon account that I mentioned already at the beginning of this episode to show how you listeners can support this podcast financially. 
Patreon is an American membership platform, but working also internationally, that provides tools for content creators like me to run a subscription service. Uh, that way, creators can earn a monthly income and in return provide the subscribers with some cool rewards. Under patreon.com slash kitchen conversations, you can find my subscription service where I offer four membership levels, a symbolic babushka for 250 per month, a friendly babushka for 5 euro per month, dedicated babushka for 10 euro per month and a super babushka for 20 euro per month. I think it's generally great that all the material that I'm producing is free for you to use on all the podcast players, yet it would also be nice to have a type of income from all the work I'm doing to also uh, bring the podcast further to invite some more guests, speak about various uh, topics, have a better quality and also perhaps be able to pay at least a symbolic sum to the guests who share so much uh, of their art and the insights of their practice with all of us. In terms of the reward, depending on your membership level, you will be getting an invitation to a membership group where I'm regularly sharing some material that I'm not able to share during the podcast or some other information about Eastern Europe in terms of the political situation and the art scene and so on and so on. Additionally, I'm also sending a regular newsletter with updates with future guests and happenings other things I'm doing around the podcast and last but not least and perhaps most interestingly and most excitingly I am working on a publication an artist cookbook that is almost in the production at the moment uh, it is a collection of recipes I collected so far during these two years on the platform of kitchen conversations and again depending on your membership level you will be getting those recipes from me either in a digital or physical format so please check out my patreon account see if you can support in any way otherwise you can also share the podcast with one other person that you think could benefit and have an interest in it Some time ago, you found like a company together with um, another person in mm. Georgia. Yeah, I think two things came together. Yeah, I met this uh, companion of mine who actually sponsored. Like, I, I was I was a, a curator at the Tbilisi Architectural Biennial. And at this Tbilisi Architectural Biennial, we were told that, you know, cardboards could be uh, provided uh, because this person that they knew very well worked at the cardboard factory and then he could they could sponsor it. I was a little bit skeptical about being sponsored in Georgia because you really don't know what they ask you. <laughs> like, you know, if you have to wear a cap, then saying their company name or something. So kind of, uh, I was a bit like, okay, let's see about it. And then this guy, a young guy came who actually yeah indeed sponsored the biennial with cardboard big sheets of cardboard like corrugated cardboard you know for for, uh, for like you know building walls or something like this okay. you know so the so material material yeah exactly so whatever we would use it for yeah and he was really you know he delivered when he said he would deliver and you know there was no much fuss about it he said like yeah mention our, our name in however you feel uh, is gonna be fitting so it was really like somehow a very nice experience of like young business 
businessmen and not of old businessmen who kind of immediately wants their name all over. And I was like, oh, this is nice. And then we kind of became friends. We started talking about some things and he has three kids. I had one kid. I mean, I, I already had my kid back then also, still one kid. And uh, yeah, this is the question in Georgia. You know, when you marry, the first question is like when you are having a kid. And when then you the had next. the first kid right away, people ask you, when are you having a second one? And you're like, <laughs> come on, you know, take a break. <laughs> That's why I'm kind of making it clear. <clears throat> Yeah, so we kind of started talking and he said, you know, this corrugated cardboard, you know, corrugated cardboard is this cardboard you kind of remember now for like, if you remember the box where the wines are packaged, this is usually corrugated cardboard. And we talked about how interesting it would be to develop um, things for kids. Because, you know, as a parent, you kind of have a lot of gifts to give away and the materials are always something you know harmful for the nature and this is like degradable you can recycle it so we're thinking like you know how nice it could be to you do things so we started from kids um, ideas to kind of do like objects for kids which are degradable and they have interesting uh, visuals in because the artists kind of would work on it and then the pandemic hit and then I kind of was missing drawing and then all of a sudden there was a lot of time to just be at home alone with my kid not being able to go anywhere else and then I started making those drawings and the name of that um, drawing book is Soul Kitchen. Uh, and in Georgian, it's called something like um, behind the scenes, maybe. It's called Inner Kitchen. Inner Kitchen would mean something like, you know, you, d you don't show your dirty laundry to someone. This is like the how you, you, don't, you, don't show, you don't show the inner kitchen the to someone. The backstage. The backstage, of. exactly. Mm -hmm. So like the drawings are really from our everyday. So at home during the pandemic and then I'm kind of starting drawing. So not as a kind of professional artist, but I don't have a studio to, I, I, I cannot go to studio. I have a studio where I cannot go because I'm with my kid. And I think like, you know, which kind of format could fit and I start like on the A4 papers so something super small and super accessible and pen and what I do is like you know this table would be great to start with you know like I start with several cups and then there's a microphone and then there's a telephone and then there is certain image on the screen and I include that and there is a book so I kind of start from a very direct surrounding and then I kind of let go and kind of do the imagination parts which connect them. So this, these were the drawings. Um, something that you don't necessarily show outside, but which is part. So in a way, yeah, from a feministic point of view of like uh, the private is political, kind of this was kind of the, the situation of private being political because you're kind of stuck, stuck. again at home. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I kind of then, and then I thought like, okay, because we were thinking of about the kids' objects already, I thought also with a kid, this professionalism and art that cannot be touched and uh, something like this kind of goes away. If you have a kid, every work of art of yours can be touched and can be stained by the kid. And you don't want to be too careful, you know, you don't want to be like, oh, no, 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 don't touch it. You kind of think like, okay, this is part of part of the everyday and it should be so in a way I thought like yeah these are my drawings I didn't kind of simplify them because of it's for kids so they're kind of really my drawings and I stand behind them but they're like ink drawings and I thought hey colors can be added by other people grown-ups or kids 
So it's kind of a drawing that shouldn't be hanging on the wall as a way of like, don't touch it, but you can touch it, you can color it, you can do whatever, you can cut it out, you can spill on it, you can spit on it, you can have like orange juice on it. It takes everything. Was and that happening also to your drawings? Uh, no, not so much. Actually, yeah, when I say that I did it with my kid, people think that uh, like we kind of did it together. No, it's more like you guys just kind of find the format which is small enough and comfortable enough to be doing in between other things. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> I can imagine you cannot just sit for hours and draw, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you find kind of some time and these kind of drawings could be also started and then continued. And what happened, we did several workshops or like events where people color together like we would like enlarge those drawings and hang it on the wall what was really enjoyable for people like when they reported it back was that they would start one thing and then they would continue somewhere else and then you know someone else would kind of continue coloring whatever they have started so somehow this kind of a um, yeah, participatory something or like kind of democratizing the drawing of like it's not one piece. Like that, yeah. It's also it also doesn't exist as an original because uh, they're made on some kind of a leftover papers and then they are scanned afterwards and sometimes they are put together in the computer. So like they as, yeah. as as such as originals also don't exist. And I think this is kind of what I needed to free myself from, to go back to drawing. So not as a kind of this, uh, yeah, one and only thing, uh, the original, uh, like professional artist, but more like, you know, more as an idea that you know, I started and I gave it to some other people to continue. Some people react to it, say like, oh, the drawings are so beautiful, I really couldn't touch it. And then I'm like, yeah, well, then take it out and put it in a frame and it's my drawing. It's like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I didn't I didn't simplify it or make it, you know, made it kind of... Uh, there's no instruction. Th- yeah, there's no instruction, but it. it's also kind of, I didn't kind of diminish it and made it like only for coloring, you know? It's really, it's my drawing which can be colored. So if you kind of enjoy my drawing, you can just take it out and hang it on your wall. It's, you know, you don't have to do anything to it, you know? So then the pandemic kind of got a bit more relaxed. You could uh, leave your house. Yeah, and then I thought, hey, I have those drawings and we have this idea to, you know, produce things for kids from cardboard. And then I had to kind of connect it to cardboard. So then as someone who has been drawing or I, I always had some paperwork and I always needed to carry things around. So then there is not a good carrying like a folder for the drawings. Mm. So I thought like, yeah, I develop a folder, which is good for carrying these drawings. And then I developed a folder, which I'm yeah really happy about. Uh, you can carry your drawings with it, but you can also turn it into a Staffelei in German. It's some kind of a yeah, display, yeah. which you can put easel, on your knees. Yeah, say, easel. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But easel always sounds a bit like... Like funny. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and then you can also turn it into a wall pocket and then you hang it on your wall and then you can keep the drawings or something else inside. So I developed this uh, folder and in the folder come this um, drawing soul kitchen. And then I went farther. The next project is another coloring book. It's more like pages. They're not attached to each other. And this was the idea to uh, make something a bit more, which would be a bit more on the wall because the drawing, you know, coloring book, then you put it back and then you put it somewhere else. But then I thought like, hey, something that would be a bit more present. And this is this birthday calendar where you can write the 
names of people uh, whom you love and then you have the drawings again connected to kitchen uh, but this time more like birthdays so there's like cakes there is like picnics there are like some uh, res- kind of recipe looking you know things that yeah things come together and the name of it is a tiger zebra marble which is the different names of this cake which is in German mar- marmorkuchen uh, I think in English it's called tiger cake. So it's these two doughs, black and white, and you mix it together and then a funny combination. Yeah, I think people know this cake. Yeah. Pro- probably everywhere it has a different name, but exactly. so like similar. Georgian was zebra, and then in English, in some English-speaking countries, it was tiger and then marble. And I was like, yeah, this is also a nice name. So now uh, we have this calendar and we have this coloring book. Uh, and we have this folder, which also can be bought as an empty folder to carry things and to use it when, you know, you see a lot of times people in the museum sitting and making a drawing. And this could true, be yeah. this could be kind of turned into this, you know, harder yeah, material where you kind of put on your knees and you can start drawing. So these are the, this is the, yeah, new, like this new direction that we have started. It's a company, it's a Georgian-German company, and uh, we're trying to sell those um coloring books both yeah, in Georgia and in Germany. the name of it? How is it called? The company? Uh, so company is called Mukao. Uh, M-U-K-A-O. It can be bought in some museum shops in Berlin, which I am super happy about. In Gropiusbau it could be bought. Uh, and in Walter König Buchhandlung it can be bought. And we're trying to, you know, kind of bring it to several shops, which are more like, yeah, museum shop would be the best place for. I guess on your website you have all the places where you can I have all it. the places, of course. Perfect, <laughs> so you will, yeah. I will include it. Yeah, I, I think the drawings are... I, I like the idea that they come from like very simple and recognizable objects, like everyday objects, which everyone has kind of. And then it really goes to the kind of abstract arts, artistic minds, mm-hmm. which which I, I like the combination a lot. Mm. Uh, the best reactions I got are like, I think the 10, 12 year old kids, they like the most because they kind of see that it's not done for kids, it's for grown ups. Uh, and they kind of want to be grown up they like that, and yeah. they really like this kind of imaginary part and they really go into it. And, they, you know, when I when I receive some reactions, you know, they're the best, the most excited about it. Which so is like nice. Great. Yeah. Great. I also got one calendar from you. Thank you very much. Yes, as a present. And I'm very curious how you will color it and how mm. you will use it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for the ending, uh, I would like you to tell about a festival you're... Um, Organizing. Organizing, Mm -hmm. exactly, because it's uh, happening quite soon. And I think a lot of people might be interested. So I hope, uh, yeah, I think it's a a great... Yeah, Great so concept. <laughs> another parallel event I started um, six years ago, maybe, because this pandemic kind of cut out the two years. So now I don't know from where to count. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the first festival, I think, was in 2016. It's called Grandmother Film Festival and also for people who listen and know some films which have main character, grandmother as a main character, please find the 
the the blogspot as well. It's Grandmother Festival, blogspot.com. So if you Google Grandmother Film Festival, this should come up. Several friends kind of mentioned that they made films about grandmothers. And then I thought like, hmm, funny, it's kind of somehow in the air. Then I realized it's because of our age. Uh, and the age means that unless you kind of record something about the grandmother, all of a sudden you realize she might die. And then I got a kid and then my mom became a grandmother. So somehow, I don't know, it kind of was in the air. And I was like, hey, if there are so many people doing projects about grandmothers, maybe let's start the Grandmother Film Festival. So I made an open call. And indeed, there were many people who did grandmother films. Uh, so I started collecting those films. And the good thing about the festival is that I don't mind which year it was made. So it could be some very old films. It could be super homemade, super personal films, feature films, documentaries, some memories, like one minute videos of grandmother dying and the grandchild filming it. So it's like very, very different formats. Usually I have around 25 films for festivals. So it's a weekend of like six or seven slots of one and a half hours, probably like sometimes one film and sometimes like mixture of like short films. And I usually do it first time in Rotterdam because this is this space it's called Tandenino at my mother's space in Rotterdam so she is the grandmother (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and I repeat the same program then a year after in Berlin so every two years I select new films and then I show the same program one time in Rotterdam one time in Berlin. This year I will do again. So in May I will have a new program in Rotterdam at Tantanino. I think at the end of the May. But yeah, if people are interested, please follow. There is a Facebook and there is a blog. So I will post there. Is it also uh, possible to see it online? Yeah, that's kind of the first time that this question came up <laughs> because now we are kind of so used in to online, online <laughs> format. I don't think I will do it at the same time because it's two kind of different brains you need to prepare a real festival and to do an online festival so I will do first the Rotterdam uh, Grandmother Film Festival and then I'm thinking to maybe also make it online yeah I, I will have to ask the makers because this was not kind of uh, the this intention yeah, in the yeah, beginning yeah. but now I think like yeah why not I mean and and the good thing about like everyone who has made a film about grandmother feels so strongly about this festival because it's like, oh my God, yeah, you know, because it's kind of all the grandmothers together. It's for sure a thing. I mean, I also interviewed my grandmother for the podcast and I got a lot of very positive responses. So it touches people, you know. Yeah, so when we met, one thing was that we both did Ritfeld and another time then when I was going through like your podcast and listening to some of them and there was this grandmother, I was like, yeah, of course, the grandmother's tales are also, also of course. Yeah, so for me, this grandmother, I, I you know, I, I, I don't have a film about my own grandmother. I also had a bit like a yeah, difficult relationship, let's say, with my grandmother. And I think for me, it was some kind of a way of uh, looking at 
how other grandmothers are, you know, it was almost like adopting a grandmother and thinking like, you know, what, what could be a good relationship? And it's not necessarily mm. always good relationship. I mean, there are, of course, a, a lot of like troublesome relationships. And uh, so it's not like necessarily a, like super sweet grandmother who kind of <laughs> does everything how the kids want, um, which is kind of this classical image that would come to my mind. Uh, it's many kind of different crazy grandmothers. And it's great that grandmothers can come in different forms. <laughs> nice. I think a lot of uh, my listeners are actually based in the Netherlands. So that might be a nice uh, tip for, for them to go. And yeah, I hopefully you can see it in Berlin. Um, yeah, yeah, and you and can come in May in Rotterdam and do like... Well, uh, yeah. Like anniversary, uh, that's two true. years anniversary of your project. Yeah, ooh, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, mm. in the kitchen of the uh, of the Tante Nino, which is a very very homey grandmother. Like, let's talk space. about it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, finishing uh, about uh, yeah, kitchens and grandmas. I wanted to ask you for your uh, favorite food. Yeah. From a place which feels like home for you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the f- place that feels like home to me is still Georgia. <laughs> and the favorite food is, there is one definite favorite food uh, that's called chakapuli. It's a meat dish, but lately it can also be made with mushrooms. And it's a dish uh, which has kind of a lot of a lot of greens. So it's like there is petersilli, there is um, coriander, there is a lot of estragon, mm-hmm. um, and there is um, mirabellen. I don't even know how this thing is called in English. I think sour plums, mirabella plums. Yeah, I know it's from. Poland, Poland, like this tiny, tiny uh, little orange sour. Bowl, yeah. yeah, so they're green in the beginning, and then they turn orange or orange the or red. You put mm-hmm. a lo- like a handful of these, which makes it like sour, and it's really, really delicious sour juice it has. So it's kind of really like when I think of this food, it's like immediately this kind of watery <laughs> mouth that you're like, oh, I got that food, and it's some kind of a spring food because this uh, mirabelle and they kind of ripe on in spring, so like it's some kind of a, like uh, it's a food traditionally eaten uh, during the Easter um, because this is the first time that you can prepare it uh, because of this mirabellen. And the nice thing about Berlin is that you don't really... You cannot really buy it. Yeah, maybe on Turkish markets sometimes, but it's a bit different. But all the Georgians who live in Berlin, they know several trees in different parks. So you kind of <laughs> have sometimes you kind of go hunting <laughs> for it. You know, I, I know that there is one in Gerlitzer Park and one is in Victoria Park. And I have been kind of with five Georgian people kind of going and picking this uh, plums <laughs> from the trees in the parks and people kind of thinking a bit like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> But yeah, it's some kind of a marking of each other. You kind of, you know, the Mirabella trees, where are they? Yeah. So <laughs> <kind nice. of laughs> yeah, so it's possible to even make it here. Nice. Thanks so much for sharing that. I'm curious to uh, to try it, probably the, the mushroom version. Uh, yeah. 
Thank you so much, Sophia. I had a lot of fun talking to you. Yeah, me too. Thank you very much for Thank having you. me here. <laughs> it for today. Thank you for reaching till the end of this episode. I will see you next time with another great artist and speaker. And as mentioned at the beginning, you can support this podcast via Patreon on patreon.com slash kitchen conversations or alternatively you can also help me develop this platform by making a one-time donation following my Instagram account or leaving a comment on one of the podcast players. All of the needed links are placed in the show notes of this episode. Take good care, until next time!